Today's episode of the Film Stage Show is brought to you by Movie, the online streaming cinema. For your free 30-day trial, go to mubi.com slash filmstage. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to a brand new episode of the Film Stage Show, the movie review podcast for thefilmstage.com. As always, I'm your host, Brian J. Rowan. With me today, my stuntman, Michael Snydell. Hello! We also have Bill Graham. Woo! <laughs> and a special guest with us today to talk about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. That is Ryan Swen. <laughs> <laughs> Hello. Hello. How are you doing today, Ryan? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. Fantastic. Thank you for joining us. Why don't you do us a favor and uh, introduce yourself to the fine folks listening at home? Well, I am a freelance film critic, write semi-frequently for the film stage and various other publications. I have my own podcast, Catalyst and Witness, and I am a USC Cinema and Media Studies master's student. Oh, Wow, so someone on this uh, podcast finally has formal education in cinema? (laughs) (laughs) I guess. You're not just some person who dealt with the loneliness of their early adulthood by diving into films? I mean, I think that's that's the primary thing, that this education is the ancillary or the sort of side effects of that condition. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, that makes sense. As I said, we are here today to talk about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, the newest film from Quentin Tarantino. Before we get into that, the usual rigmarole up front, you can find us on Twitter at Film Stage Show, Facebook, The Film Stage Show, and of course, you can email us podcastfilmstage.com, and you can go on iTunes and give us a comment and a rating. You can also join us and become a patron by going to patreon.com slash Show for as little as $1 an episode. You help us to produce more great podcasts. You also get access to our super cool Slack channel, and you get first crack at all of the raffles that we do on the film stage. We are also brought to you by Mubi, the online streaming cinema, where every day they're, I usually come up with an adjective and I just blanked on one. They're fabulous, (laughs) fantastic curators, deliver a new film for you to watch and enjoy. Each film sticks around for 30 days, so that means you have a constantly rotating selection of 30 films to check out. They've got some awesome stuff on there that has appeared recently. For instance, an Errol Morris retrospective, Reconstructing the Truth. And for that, they have Gates of Heaven, Vernon, Florida, and of course, the police classic, The Thin Blue Line. Brian, you need to mention spread. You need to mention it. (laughs) Spread as well. why, Why do I need to mention spread? Because... It's a movie that David McKenzie did with Ashton Kutcher as a person who's sad because he has too much sex. Yeah, because he's like a, a gigolo type of guy, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But it's on movie. I just, I love that. <laughs> Is this, do you think, the first Ashton Kutcher film to be on movie? I mean, Just Married has to have been on movie at some point, right? <laughs> That's a good poll. I was going to say Jobs. <laughs> Come on, the butterfly effect, guys. Let's all oh, bring up man. our favorite obscure Ashton Kutcher film. Dude, where's my car? I think that's the only one that's not obscure. Yes, that's a good one, though. No, here's the thing. Yeah. If they've 
ever had a Frankenheimer retrospective and they had reindeer games. <laughs> he's in that movie for 30 seconds. Oh, wow. Yeah. He is the guy who uh, trades jackets with Ben Affleck in the bathroom of the casino. Why would you commit that to memory? <laughs> it's, I don't know. My brain is dumb. I don't know. What to do. <laughs> uh, the other thing I wanted to bring up that's currently on movie is Goodbye First Love by Mia Hansen Love. Really? No one has an opinion on that movie? I, I, I need to see more. I need to see more Hanson Love. Well, if you, like our guest, need to see more Mia Hansen Love, <laughs> all you need to do is get your free 30-day trial of movie by going to MU bi.com slash film stage again that's mubi.com slash film stage and that's it we can now get into our review of once upon a time in hollywood is that a better it. yeah okay great <laughs> that's appropriate amount pause so i am looking at the imdb page for once upon a time in hollywood the the issue is that oh right above the actual title of the page, they have their like full screen ad for the movie banner, and there it is spelled "Once Upon a Time in Hollywood." Oh that's no, how, that's how it's spelled on the New Beverly Marquee as well. Oh, I, I would probably trust that. <laughs> yeah, but well, I mean, the, I trust the film first. So the film itself <laughs> is "Once Upon a Time." In Hollywood. And Michael, as a person who just rewatched uh Inglorious Bastards, you should know that movie opens with Once Upon a Time Yeah. In, in Nazi occupied France. Yes. <laughs> so who are we to believe? Where will we put our pauses? This is the great debate of cinema in twenty nineteen. We can also do the horrid acronym O U A T I H, which it seems like everybody adopted for some reason. But, it's, you know. I mean, it's I, I, started, I started seeing that and I was like, you guys are awful. I keep trying to pronounce it. <laughs> it's not working. <laughs> it's like, yeah, no, nothing. So I'm going to go with uh, what the movie says and what he'd already kind of established in Glorious Bastards. This is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Again, written and directed by Quentin Tarantino. This movie stars Leonardo DiCaprio, Brad Pitt, and Margot Robbie. And uh, it is about two men. One, a fading Hollywood actor now bumming around on television. And the other is his stuntman best friend who exist in Hollywood in parallel with Sharon Tate. And the movie builds up to that fateful night that we all know when the Manson family came a-knockin'. Here is the trailer. I'm Rick Dalton. It's my pleasure, Mr. Schwartz. Call me Marvin. Put it there. That your son? No, it's my stunt double, Cliff Booth. Last night, we watched a Rick Dalton double feature. <laughs> oh, the shooting... I love that stuff, you know, with the killing. A lot of killing. Anybody order fried sauerkraut? Fried, you Nazi bastards! <laughs> All right. That is the part of the trailer for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I'm going to have to shrink that pause. I cannot sustain yeah, that for the entirety no. of this episode. <laughs> The bit is not worth it. 
Here we are to talk about it. Newest film from Quentin Tarantino. Uh, usually in a situation like this, I would say, what are your thoughts on his last film or his oeuvre? I don't know that the podcast can... I mean, you know, we don't have to worry about going more length than the movie itself, hopefully. <laughs> but uh, I guess we'd start off in general. What are your thoughts on Quentin Tarantino, his last couple films in brief, before giving your nutshells, both of your thoughts on Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? Let us start with our guest, Ryan Swen. Well, I do like Quentin Tarantino, and I do think that he is a very interesting director, and I actually think... In general, I take more to his sense of direction than his actual screenplays, which is what a lot of people uh, latch on to. And I will say that it's been a while since I've seen a lot of the films, so I can't really speak in in great accuracy as to my exact thoughts on them. But I do think that they're all generally, they all have a very strong sensibility to them. And sometimes that can lead to very fruitful things. I think my two favorites are are two of his somewhat more recent films, Death Proof and, and Inglorious Bastards. And I did also quite enjoy, or enjoy maybe not the totally accurate term, but I did quite like The Hateful Eight as well. So I do, I am definitely positive on him. I definitely wouldn't consider him a, a cinematic golden bowl or anything like that, but I do enjoy him, certainly. All right. And what are your uh, what are your basic thoughts on Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? I really enjoyed it. It is definitely one of my favorites of Tarantino's. I think that I will say that it's maybe maybe the it's strange because in a, in a way it's meant to be sort of ephemeral. Yet so and and so the the it's more about the feeling rather than the specifics of uh, of the narr- overall narrative or a specific bravura scene or something like that like a lot of his other films but i think because of that there is this very strong unity to it and a very strong wonderful feeling that the film carries out i think quite quite successfully all right bill graham um so i i enjoyed tarantino's output i've enjoyed his last few movies um i always find something interesting and and uh something to talk about when exiting his films, even the hateful eight, which, you know, uh, I saw in the rolling road show version, which is, I think three hours and 15 minutes or something like that. Something stupid. Um, with intermission as well. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, it's, it's dumb long and it was big and, uh, I enjoyed every moment of it. Um, so, you know, it, it's, it's Tarantino, one of the few rare filmmakers that makes me feel every time he comes out with a movie, it's kind of an event. Um, even if you maybe haven't paid attention to movies lately, um, you know, I mean, just the average moviegoer, you can say Tarantino and that rings a bell for them and that will give an emotional reaction out of them. Um, so I think there's a lot to be said about Tarantino as a filmmaker overall. Um, he's definitely one of our most unique voices going and uh, he doesn't seem to be slowing down except for his pending like 10 film, like quote unquote, uh, what is it runtime i guess or whatever you want to call it like i don't know maybe he'll he'll sneak one in i mean he's already cheated a little bit i i heard earlier that he actually considers kill bill one and two like 
a single film. So that's a little bit of a cheat, but you know, <laughs> whatever. Um, this film, uh, I enjoyed it from beginning to end. I did not know what to expect coming into this film. Um, but I was pleasantly surprised. It has one of those raucous endings that you kind of hope for in one of these films. Um, it certainly livened up my theater, but uh, overall, I really enjoyed just spending time with these characters. I think I think each one of them is interesting in their own way, and uh, yeah, I I enjoyed the time period. I enjoyed the way that he shoots it, the way that he just lovingly recreates some of this history, and uh, has has some fun with it at the same time. Also, flamethrowers are pretty fucking awesome. So. <laughs> <laughs> all right michael snadell you know i i had a good time with this but i i feel a little more unresolved and conflicted with parts of it as days go on i i mean there's so much baggage in and outside this film that you can you can talk to i mean i or you can uh, speak to i the the frippery that's kind of in all of his films the sense of like metac- meticulous uh you know era stuff the uh, you know Characters who have single lines who manage to make an impact, the cameos, the in-jokes, like, that is all sterling. It's it's a, it's a larger question to me whether the destination doesn't feel a little hollow, uh, which we can speak to, obviously, in much more detail. Uh, shit, everything... I don't know. I, I thought I could say more, but I don't really want to say more because it's it all implies things. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, hey. I, I had a I had a good time. I think the acting is great. I just I, I think the weird thing about it is Tarantino is so thoughtful about so many things and so many things feel emotional and poignant that the things that stick out like sore thumbs to me, they're things that I spend too long thinking about. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I um I've enjoyed Tarantino's output throughout the whole of his career. Um first movie I ever saw of his was uh, Reservoir Dogs, which I bought as a kid who was probably honestly too young to buy it uh, at yeah, a record that, and tape traders. That seems bad. That seems <laughs> bad. I um I feel like I was like 13 and I went to record and tape traders, saw it, I was like, "Oh, I am vaguely aware that Quentin Tarantino is a guy and I like movies and I should watch this movie. So I bought it. My friends and I watched it. And uh, I won't say it scarred us, but it definitely like it did something to us. It like implanted something in our brains. And so um, you were the star of the sleepover that night is what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> the best thing is that it wasn't a sleepover. So I would uh, get off the bus from i guess middle or high school i legitimately can't remember how old i was when i saw this and we'd go to my house my friend tony and i and sometimes ben would come over because he went to private school we'd make a DiGiorno pizza <laughs> we'd wait for my newspapers to get dropped off at my house and then we'd eat the pizza wrap up the papers watch a movie and then go on my paper route <laughs> <laughs> and this was a thing that we did nearly constantly so anyway uh that's when i first saw it i was like holy shit that was great loved it and then i uh, started watching all those other movies obviously um and i haven't had the kind of diminishing returns feeling a lot of people seem to have i really liked django really liked uh inglorious bastards 
Really, really, really liked Hateful Eight. And this movie is really good. I, I, I really, really like it. I think that there are knocks against it that I can understand from a critical perspective. But if you're vibing on its level... It's stuff that you're going to love. I, I was talking to a friend who did not like it, and I said, it's kind of like jazz. I can understand if it's not for you, but I at least need you to admit that there is like thought and purpose behind everything that's going on. And he could not reach me there. So, I, I promise none of my quibbles are with the number of lines that any character has. That's <laughs> good. Um, th- that's the other thing that's uh, going to be funny about talking about this movie is that there is a lot of basic or like surface level stuff that people have latched onto in some ways that I'm sure we will in some way talk about that is kind of overwhelmed, but I think is ultimately like one of his more mature, optimistic stories. And, um, I, I kind of like it. I kind of love it. Actually. It's, I had a great time watching it. And when it was over, I was like, Holy crap. Like truly, this is a movie that, deserves to begin with the fairy tale edict of once upon a time and so yeah i uh, i enjoyed the hell out of this movie i'm super glad i got to see it can't wait to see it again and i'm very excited to be able to talk about it with you fine folks i was gonna say uh, theater reactions but i guess we want to wait to spoilers for that too honestly because was... I, I had some interesting <laughs> theater stuff let me tell you <laughs> i will say i went and saw this at 10 a.m on a saturday um, so this will not be one of those times where I get to talk about the inappropriately young children taken to a movie that I saw. Sure. <laughs> but I imagine that, you know, seven hours later, if I had gone and seen it, that there would have been some inappropriately young children. But generally, people in my theater seem to dig it. As did mine, definitely. Well, I, I had someone bootlegging the movie in front of me. <laughs> so bootlegging the movie? <laughs> I, yeah, I did taking videos of it for long periods of time. And, you know, I was doing my our, our listeners will know I have a patented uh, time limit. One minute when people it's it's at, it's one thirty now, Bill. I, I, I was I don't wow. know why I lifted it. I don't know. But, yeah, someone what? was Instagramming. Someone was Instagramming parts of the movie. And the person, her partner was literally taking chunks of the phone. (laughs) How did they know which parts to do? Like, did they just assume when a good part was going to happen? No, it was just like slapdash. Like they put it away for a while and then take it out again. And I want to say, I found this out after the movie because I only saw the person Instagramming things. And I'm like, would you kindly put your phone away? And she put it away. And then Emily was like, did you do that? Because the guy was, uh, was videotaping the whole movie and i was like what <laughs> like this was something i couldn't see but also ended because i said something <laughs> so i'm just saying who's the real hero <laughs> there was someone who did that at the lion king screening i went to like when they knew a song was coming up they would take their phone out oh my god and i i just hated that movie so much that i didn't care <laughs> But okay, the, the actual thing of substance I, I, I didn't want to say about the theater experience is, you know, in Glorious Bastards, Django, they, you know, they require, they don't require a lot of knowledge about the antebellum South or slavery or World War II. This, I am not sure that people knew about the potentially main event in this movie. <laughs> yeah. 
Let's, I, um, let's put it that way. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of weird because that's been a big part of the discourse is like, uh-oh, he's making a Manson movie and Sharon Tate's in it. Like, what's this sure. going to be like? And it it is weird to see reactions from people who are like, whoa, what was that? Like, who who were those people? <laughs> like, what's going on here? Especially because, I guess, just in most of the circles that I run in, people have been like, oh, it's a movie about Manson. I don't know much about that. Like, what should I, like, should I read something? I've got to look at the Wikipedia article. Um, Isn't Manson one of your obsessions too, Brian? If I'm like, as far as serial killers go, I think like to make it sound like obsession. You have kind of a fixation on true crime, though. I I, I thought Manson I, was someone who's. I actually don't like Manson that much because I oh. feel like he gets too much credit. <laughs> he's too big. <laughs> I think he's kind he's of not a, a deep cut. Yeah, well, yeah. Oh, he's too, way too oh, mainstream. Let's cut, talk about huh? the zebra murders. Um. <laughs> No, so my issue with Manson is that, like, he he comes off as, like, this Jim Jones, you know, Zodiac killer kind of guy. But, like, when you learn about him, he really seems like he's just an idiot who <laughs> got other idiots and things escalated in what could have been almost a comical way were it not for how many people they killed and the way in which they did it. But, like, so we we did our... What was that stupid cult movie with a uh, twitchy eye Dan Stevens in it? Oh, the apostle. Yeah, that's it. And I did like a 15 second version of Manson on that. <laughs> and it was, you know, just like a methed out sounding desert wizard. And like, that's pretty much what I think of him. Um, <laughs> I do know a lot about him because between you must remember this. The last podcast on the left and just general reading and stuff, I have happened to have learned a lot about him. But he's he, I wouldn't say he's one of my favorites. But, I'm, <laughs> but I was just surprised. I, I think given the reactions that some people weren't quite aware when this, you know, twists in the same way like in Glorious Bastards, for instance. Yeah, it's um, it was weird because like... Uh, just you bringing it up in this way, part of me is like, whoa, is that a spoiler? And it's like, no, it shouldn't be a spoiler. Everyone knows that the Manson family's coming. Sure. <laughs> but it is it is weird because there's there were some people in my theater who seemed to be like, what? what? Whoa, what's this? Like, <laughs> I was like, that's the fucking Manson family. That's Tex and Sadie and Patty, and they're coming to murder people. <laughs> so I don't want to hear tweets from anyone who's listening to this right now and going, whoa, guys, spoilers. Literally... The second you hear Manson movie involving Sharon Tate, sure. you should assume that at some point Cielo Drive is going to get infiltrated by some hippies. I want to I want to recommend to Jason Bailey did a, a pretty interesting piece at, at FlavorWire that contextualized this within the kind of tradition of like Manson exploitation. <laughs> like there are a lot of movies out there. What a term. That are like, about Manson. <laughs> there was like one earlier this year, wasn't there, with like Hillary Duff? There were two. There is The Killing of Sharon Tate, which I believe is on Amazon Prime, and I'm definitely not going to watch sometime in the next week. And uh, Charlie Says, which from Mary Heron, who recently did, um, oh, God, that American wonderful Psycho? Netflix thing with Sarah Gade Gadon. Uh Ryan, I remember you talking about this. Do you know what I'm talking about? This it sounds familiar. Uh, I can't quite remember at this point. But, of course, she also directed uh, American Psycho oh, yes. and – uh, notorious betty page uh, but this is her first theatrical film in i think a decade or something like that yeah yeah 
But yeah. So yeah, we've already had two Manson movies. <laughs> Here's the... Oh, well, oh, damn it. I can't really talk about it until we get into spoilers. Um, sure. But I have thoughts about Manson's prominence in our in our modern age. Now, what you were saying about Mary Heron, uh, the only thing I'm seeing between between the notorious betty page and alias grace that's what it is grace right, right oh okay yeah it's it's great i i'd highly recommend it and the return came out last year so you can't really compete with the return <laughs> but alias grace is really good <laughs> yeah that's right i really really wanted to watch that and then i never did it now i yeah, feel bad. it's yeah it's good awesome um <laughs> sorry <laughs> it's all right now i've been sidelined by being like Oh, right. We're in that peak TV thing where it's like, remember when you were so excited for that thing you never watched that was like seven months ago and you've already forgotten it? But that's the definition of peak TV. Though, that is 100% peak TV. Uh, speaking of, Rubicon is now available for the first time ever streaming. Uh, you should definitely watch that. Yeah, that's that's oh, great. Yeah. Okay, we should. Sorry, we Let's should get, get back, back on to the, the thing we're talking about. What's about a time in Hollywood? So before we get into spoilers... <laughs> I wanted to just bring up the way that this movie builds its world, its history, and really gives you a sense of place. I loved the fact that this might be one of the few movies where every time that someone is listening to the radio, it's not just like a top 40 hit from that month. It's like a lot of times it is a commercial. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And in addition to that, they bring up a lot of these TV shows that are apparently real that I've never heard of it. The, the deep dive into the culture reminds me almost of the Americans just in its attention to detail. Mm -hmm. The mm -hmm. Americans had an episode where one of the kids is watching TV and there's um, <laughs> a commercial for a karate studio. That's like legitimately from that time, from that place. And it's semi locally <laughs> famous with like this kid being like, nobody bothers me because now he knows karate <laughs> <laughs> and things like that. I love. And in terms of building a sense of place, I mean, clearly it's a Tarantino movie. You expect the music and this sure. soundtrack syncs up very closely to the soundtrack of uh, once or bad times, of the El Royale. Mm. Yeah. So, we all recall me saying that I had trouble not bursting into song while watching that movie. Similar issue here. Every time a new song came on, I was I was just about to like break down and start dancing. And I think that like this movie is fantastic at building that sense of place. I mean, you spoke about those uh, the commercials. I mean, that becomes like uh like crucial sound design at certain points. Um that that becomes like a, is diegetic in a, in a really interesting way, you know. Even if it's if it's just a commercial that you know becomes its own like horror cue. Like it, there's some really nice ways that that like dovetails into like the actual you know like narrative and things like that. And that's without you being aware that like two people will be listening to the same thing, and so it'll fade out and then come back as another character enters listening to the same station. Sure. Well, Ryan, I mean, this might be a good time. You're actually, you newly transplanted, transplanted to L.A., right? Yes. And so, I, I saw it in Hollywood, which is a nice, uh, <laughs> a nice thing to have. So Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, you saw Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yes, Super I did. <laughs> Do you think you had a different experience having seen it in Hollywood or now being newly in L.A.? Did you 
Did you, do you feel like you experience any of these things differently? I think in a strange way, I think maybe the most apparent thing was actually on leaving the, the theater and actually stepping out, not necessarily in the same areas, into the same environments, but still that same milieu to a certain extent, that same actual sense of place and location. I think that that did have an effect. I won't say that I necessarily recognized a lot of the places or even most of the places, but I think it all exists within this same sort of area, which I think really the film really taps into, especially with how much it focuses on the the rhythms of, of driving and, and just transportation and just moving around the, the city. Yeah. I, I love those scenes of just Brad Pitt's uh, character, just how long, how much time is just given to just him tooling around in the, in the car and just going past all of these, I, not familiar, but they're so meticulous that, that this, I don't know how they filmed this in in such a way that everything seems so pitch perfect. Like it, it never once feels like a soundstage or anything. Legitimately, you know, unless my, it needs to be a soundstage. Right. Yes. <laughs> there are scenes that take place on legitimate sound stages, but my yes. brain was like actively curious while watching this. Like, <laughs> like did they like every car was every car real? Like, there's just a part of my brain that. You know, I used to assume that, like, you know, if I'm watching, I I don't even know a movie, uh, Road to Perdition. It's like, yeah, they found a shit ton of Model A's and Model T's and they put them on this street and there we go. But I've seen the effects reels of people being like, oh, so you think your favorite movie doesn't have digital effects? Well, here, take a look at the Wolf of Wall Street. You know, Santa Claus isn't real. <laughs> yeah. And so I was watching and I was like, I don't know, man, they all look real. Like, this all looks pretty goddamn real to me. Um, also on the subject of the cars, I loved this movie's primary relationship is between Rick Dalton, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio playing like an actor on the decline and Cliff, his uh, stuntman best friend who isn't getting a lot of work anymore. And I loved the way that they act around each other and the way they act independently, kind of informing their characters, uh, probably immediately most apparent when Cliff is driving Rick's car. This um, beautiful but old and very kind of stodgy uh, sedan. And then he gets into his own little like beat up old ass, even older than the sedan, like speedster and is just ripping around corners and going nuts. <laughs> the stuntman and, coming out. <laughs> right. The stuntman coming out. The old dude who is more physically lithe than the younger dude. The younger dude who's a little too rigid a little too stuck in his ways. Like there's just so much good, like I won't say invisible, but like subtextual work done in that way. And uh, yeah, I, um, I was curious if their friendship, which is clearly supposed to be the crux of the movie worked for everyone else as well as it clearly worked for me and the ways that it was uh, signaled. Yeah, I think it absolutely works. I think because there are so many little elements that are introduced that it feels so lived in. I think even from the very beginning, when you just, it begins in with the, these black and white interviews on the set of Bounty Law, when Rick Dalton was still, was still the star and you have the sort of little jabs that they, that especially uh, Cliff Booth directs towards Rick and saying, I help lighten the load 
<laughs> if he doesn't, if he doesn't, uh, so that he, if if he falls, they don't have to spend a week of they don't have to spend filming for a week or something like that. And you would have just that sense of it's not necessarily it's by no means a purely transactional relationship because you can tell that there is this very that there's this sense of camaraderie and familiarity, but also at this point now that Cliff largely acts as his as Rick's driver. He's basically paid to stay around and be his friend, but <laughs> but he still makes the best of that situation. And you have a very strong dynamic bouncing between them. You have Brad Pitt as this ultimate reactive soundboard to Rickton's very anxiety ridden, anxiety ridden fading star, and you, it, the dynamic just feels so well drawn from the opening moments, and it continues on through the entirety of the film, basically. I think it's interesting, too, how it defines almost the tiers of stardom uh, in terms of Rick and and uh, Booth in, in the sense that, like, you know, when you see him finally go home, he goes back to a, a trailer with his uh, lovable Brandy. And, you know, like he's he's a man of such simple pleasures. And, and it's clear that even at the peak of his career, it wasn't. I, it it wasn't the type of hedonism <laughs> that Rick is is doing, and and I think that's so interesting that they're they're both being left behind, but they're being left behind in in such different different ways, uh, you know, from a, a modest mid range actor to a stuntman, there's still such a such a huge gulf in terms of what they're capable of and what the future even looks like. And the way that they're juxtaposed against Sharon Tate is kind of heartbreaking at times. <laughs> Rick, Rick lives alone in this house that is, you know, you, you hear movies taking place in the 60s and 70s and you're expecting like super cool mod furniture, like mid-century stuff. And Rick's house reminds me of like my grandmother's house, just in yeah. the colors <laughs> and, and the furniture. And then you just zip on over to Sharon Tate's house where like cool music is always playing and, and natural light. Yeah. Natural light. She and her beautiful friends are just having a ball with all their good looking stuff. Mm-hmm. And I was just, it, it was, it was like sad, but at the same time, like I, I good on Sharon. Like that's great for <laughs> her. It seemed nice to see like the optimistic kind of world that she was living in. Because she had her whole career ahead of her and she earnestly loved what she was doing. Um, there's a difference between Rick kind of flinching at the idea of, of even doing his own work and kind of being afraid to face it. And Sharon Tate going into this, uh, I think it's I think it's in West Hollywood, you know, theater and like watching people watching her and just loving it, like loving her own work, sure. loving the way that people are reacting to it. And just like not lording her fame over other people, but definitely enjoying the way that they respond to it and the way that she can feel about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they they do find a, a good uh, balance too for that affection in the sense that like the you know she when she goes to the theater she's like wait can I get in by telling them that I'm in the movie right, <laughs> and they right. don't believe her for a while they, she has to call the manager to come and that you know what they're if kind I'm of her the movie. poster. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yeah that's great i also love the fact that like it takes them naming like three different people from valley of the dolls before they finally get to her character 
It was... uh, the, the one that does dirty ends up doing dirty movies. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> a phrasing which is repeated multiple times throughout the film. To... They have premieres for dirty movies? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I didn't even think about that as a, as a weird callback, too. Uh, the fact that her character goes on to do dirty movies in Belly of the Dolls and that it's just... And, and that's right before... Well, I don't want to say that location. That seems like a spoiler. <laughs> well, let's um, uh, let, yeah, let's go. Let's ahead go and into get spoilers. Into we've we've Sorry. talked about the basics. We've we've clearly made our affection known, and now we can talk about some of the themes and stuff. Sure. And let's begin our spoilers by playing a quick round of the does die does the dog die at the end dot com game. <laughs> <laughs> so we start. And remember, people, we're in spoilers. So if you don't want to hear any more, boy, shut off your damn radio. Um. Let's start with the most important question. We got Brandy, Brad Pitt's stunt dog. <laughs> Does the dog die? No. Correct. No. Yeah. yeah. He does. Neither, neither does. <laughs> and also, Sharon Tate's dog does not die either. Yeah. That's, uh, that's that's a good point, Bill. Maybe there should be another question for: Does the dog actually kill anyone else? <laughs> <laughs> Although he's yeah. close. He's close. Yeah. Did you guys see that PETA is not a fan of this movie? Understandably. I mean, because the dog, they, the dog they, gets punched. <laughs> they gave it a pass, though, on the, in the credits, though. Sure. Well, <laughs> Wait, you, know, you, say, you know how what the dog's purpose went, so. <laughs> well, because, yeah, it's the, it's the Humane Association gives the pass for the movie. But what does PETA give a shit about movies? Well, you know, usually when a, a dog is less than you know it's not just pets let's put it that way <laughs> when a dog is you first of all here's the thing that dog is a hero we will get to it um next question are animals abused no yeah yeah eh. no that dog's not abused it is it is punched but it is being being the biter at at the same time so i don't feel like that's being abused i feel like that's defending yourself almost now here's um, the thing bill you make a valid point but according to does the dog die.com yes animals are abused i mean he doesn't have an iron skull bill. <laughs> the dog is punched also let's not forget a rat is left on a trap crying out oh yeah no i hated that that was terrible <laughs> mm. <sighs> Here's a good there one. Are... And again, remember, spoilers. Does a head get squashed? Oh, yes. Multiple. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. On a hearth. <laughs> you said I have a hernia? No, on a hernia. <laughs> uh, does the dog die? Does that say about her- hernias? No, I don't think. They, there's a, does someone go to the hospital? Okay. Yeah, someone goes to the yeah. hospital. Here's, here's a good one. Does someone drown? <laughs> no. this is great though the top comment is someone dies in a pool but not by drowning (laughs) (laughs) go see the movie (laughs) we're in spoilers what are we doing (laughs) and the final one not us (laughs) someone someone gets fucking lit on fire in that pool now here's that this is the thing there is one that says is someone burned alive but we're not going to do that one (laughs) Yeah, that's is a child abused. (laughs) I mean, she has knee pads, but (laughs) 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 
Michael Snydell, oh. you are correct. According to dogdie.com, the answer is no. A child is thrown on the floor, but was unharmed and happily gets up. That's awesome. Yep. I like this game. This I'm just saying. Game. We're, we're going to keep this game. There are some choices in this movie that he makes that seem to be winking at past almost tragedies that are choices. <laughs> I'm curious, like what? Okay, I mean that sequence, you could say it's it, – I've seen – this is not only my thought, but I've seen you know the, the little girl who's kind of a method actor in training <laughs> – um, <laughs> You know, she believes that the scene's integrity is above – she puts that above anything else. And that is fascinating given the comments that Uma Thurman made and the interview. And regardless – I know this is a is a contentious thing, but you know, while she did forgive him, I still think that there are a number of moments that do draw uh, – do do draw questions about me too, whether you want to make, uh, you know, whether you want to specifically bring Polanski in or even just leave them as metaphorical. He's, he's poking the bear a little bit. Well, so given the industry and how it was at the time and that this takes place before Polanski's crime, I mean... Sure. You know, and the fact that Plansky was, in fact, married to Sharon Tate. But also the whole Weinstein thing, like Tarantino is very he was very much someone who had a target on his head. And I, I don't want to make this only a for or not a formalist, a uh, shit, a, a reading that brings in autobiographical details. That's not what I'm trying to do. But what I'm saying is I think that there are things here that it's not difficult to draw parallels or or maybe you guys disagree and maybe i'm being too vague here i mean i think we're still talking about the little girl (laughs) i I was gonna say i'm not sure what we're still talking about but ryan you seem to have an opinion no i mean like i was going to say something along those lines but i think that also i mean just to get the just to discuss the plansky angle i think that one of the key things is that even though I think that Polanski is as a character only seen really in two sequences and both of them are in that first, in that first night, basically that the film covers. And I think that it's really, and, and it's, he's always seen somewhat at a distance in in all of those, in all of those. And I think a really key thing is that even though the, the, the final, the final uh, August 8th, is obviously a very alternate depiction of the an alternate depiction that Polanski himself still isn't there that he's still an absent figure and that the focus yeah. is pulled onto Sharon Tate um, in multiple ways I think that is a really important point and it, I think it also helps strengthen that sense like it actually I think makes Rick's sort of acceptance into this world I think that much more poignant because it's mm. with a it's with not the the person of his dreams that the idol that he wants to he wants to revitalize his career but with an actual person with an actual uh figure that we've experienced in over the past two hours oh no i I, that's a that's a totally fair point and and i do want to say i i do want to say that you know i i was fearing for the worst when i kind of 
you know, right around the lines of that this would deal with the Mensen tragedy. And and I do think that the intention of this is so interesting even compared to his other historical fantasies, like something like the end of Django or the end of uh, Inglorious Bastards. Um, I can I can spoil those, right, guys? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, we've already said that they're revisionists. Sure. So. Let's play the does the dog die at the end dot com game about both of those. <laughs> oh, good Lord. <laughs> People okay. are burned alive. Okay, but my point being, though, that like those two were people going on revenge streaks. And I do think there's something much more interesting here that like it's just (laughs) Brad Pitt's on a trip and (laughs) and uh, Rick's just in his pool. Like, what the fuck is happening? (laughs) I I think that that's a really key point that's kind of been it's not being lost in some of the conversation, but I, I do think that. They really found the only angle that this this becomes not like a hero worship story. Like I, I give it a lot of credit. For hearing that. hearing the the logline for this film, I think a lot of people were like, "Look, he clearly wasn't afraid to end World War II differently." <laughs> <laughs> and despite his love of movies, it seems like ending the Manson murders differently is like a much less of a stretch than ending World War II differently. So why wouldn't he? And there were people who were worried. That it was going to be like, oh, this family is like, you know, tied up. Well, this family, this group of people is tied up and like these two guys swing in and save the day. And I I love the fact that (laughs) it is because Rick Dalton is a bit of a conservative curmudgeon (laughs) that he becomes the, the target of these people. Because, again, just talking about my my feelings about Manson, these people were fucking idiots. They were just a bunch of fried on acid hippie losers who took rambling instructions from a guy who failed to be a folk singer and they (laughs) went to Sharon Tate's house because Terry Melcher used to live there and Terry is the guy who didn't quote unquote work hard enough to get Manson his his music career is that who Terry was yeah Yeah. oh wow (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they mentioned Dennis Wilson as well. So, like, they've got a friend in jail, and they're like, you know, oh, no, like, this guy's in jail. We got to do something to get him out. I've seen this movie where a guy gets out of jail if a similar crime happens while he's in there, because then people assume that they didn't get the real killer. And so Manson's like, yeah, man, like, we need some money. Why don't you just go to Terry's house and, like, you know, and then uh, do some stuff there. Make it look really witchy. Like, make it look really bad stuff. Like, make it as bad as possible. Are you, is this your Beetlejuice? What what is happening? <laughs> That's my Manson, because Manson again is a Manson lived a terrible life. God only knows, like if he was born mm-hmm. to a loving family, how he would end up. But how he did end up was a fucking maniac mm-hmm. who was obsessed. And this, when he goes to Spawn Ranch, when Cliff goes to Spawn Ranch, I loved that you could see all the half-built VW bug dune buggies that they were trying mm-hmm. to make. Mm-hmm. For when they drove out into the desert to live in the hole that he had found that he claimed was filled with water for when the race war happens. Like, this guy was a fucking moron. And these people were morons. And in this movie, I he 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 has, he being Tarantino, has so little respect for them. And even when they burst into the house, they do not become the frightening boogeymen. that we expect them to be and manson himself only appears for a single scene yep (laughs) 
to which I which I like, and I I gotta be honest. When that first scene ended, I'm like, wait, that that was that was it? Like, <laughs> is there gonna be another? <laughs> Right. Like, I kept expecting, I, like, are we going to go back to Spawn Ranch and is Manson <laughs> going to be there and he's going to yeah. be like, Helter Skelter's coming. It's time to rock and roll. Like, but I instead, I my watch, but I was like, uh, this is restrained for Tarantino. <laughs> right, because Manson just shows up and he's like, hey, I'm a friend of Terry's. And they're like, Terry hasn't lived here for like two months. And he's like, oh, damn. Okay. <laughs> but there's like, there's a certain like boyish naivete to this that I think, you know, there's a, there's a glibness and a cynicism to something speaking again to like, uh, to Django and to Inglorious Bastards. And there is something, there's something so weird about his idea that like, Oh, everything would have been fine. If the, if the Mansons were prevented, like we would have pervert, preserved this time period uh, as was, and everything would be, Gro- I was going to say groovy, but Please they fucking hate it. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I do think like, and, and I'm not saying that as a flaw, but I think it's fascinating. I, again, use the word Brian conservative here. And, you know, that's a, it's a word that's been distorted that it's hard to talk about anything other than ideology. Like uh, that, like is, yeah, I don't know. It's it, it it doesn't just feel like a fantasy. It feels like another level of like personal delusion. <laughs> if that makes any sense. Well, I I this is what I'd put out there as like to what this film is saying and I would love for anyone who has a different opinion Please. to let me know what they think. Um it seems as though Quentin Tarantino like many people believes that Charlie Manson and the Manson murders brought an end to like the hope and the, the kind of uh, optimism of the sixties. And this movie posits that like, because of them, people like DiCaprio felt good being on the outside. So like if the murder had gone as planned, DiCaprio's character pretty much would have been like, oh, I was right about those damn hippies. And Cliff probably would have felt the same way. And Tate would have been murdered. And so her, like, you know, joy and vivaciousness likewise would have been snuffed out. And so you'd have people like, you know, Rick Dalton just kind of more firmly entrenching themselves in this belief that, like, this flower child movement is terrible. And, like, probably linking the people next door who lived a similar ish, but like much less insane lifestyle to that and the culture war happening. And then, and then that dying, but in this way, by kind of exposing and then destroying that horrible dark side of the hippie movement, you instead have this kind of union between the two that even if it doesn't create any kind of new professional opportunities for Rick, it still introduces him to this group of people who are like very warm and inviting and they're neighbors. And now they could like have a nice neighborly community. And so it's, it's less about like, okay, now the way that things are is going to be persevered. It's like, maybe we can move forward instead into a new and more like unified and optimistic future where both of these people exist and find what they're looking for. Okay. Interesting. No, I, 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 no I, I do like that reading. It's just certain things 
I think there are certain interesting interesting like uh, disruptions in, in this i think a bruce lee mm-hmm. scene is what something that a lot of people have talked about <laughs> and there's a lot of question of whether you know uh, you know if you go through it in a granular way you know it's like three to three i believe is what the actual uh you know fight turns out to be like mm-hmm. of course brad pitt gets the one real good hit into the <laughs> zobel's car mm-hmm. but uh, zobel's car but it is – I don't know how to read that because part of me was like, OK, is this a kill your idols moment for Tarantino? Like he adores Bruce Lee. I mean Bruce Lee is the entire uh, fashion uh, uh, foundation for Kill Bill. Like yeah. it, there is it, – it's, it, it's so interesting to me and uh, odd to me these disruptions like that Bruce Lee scene. And and I do want to say I am a little worried about how my actual experience was because I was having people who were laughing every time Bruce Lee like made a sound when did I, a cry. Yeah. yeah. And it was like, it was deeply uncomfortable. But I think that's more on them than on the movie itself. No, 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 no. Yeah, not, that's what I'm saying. I, we're I'm not saying, used to that anymore. Like, but I remember when I was a child, you know, and I would be like, we should play people who hit each other. <laughs> and our games were not sophisticated. That sounds like a grindhouse movie. <laughs> but you know, we we would we would do like you know the crane kick stuff, and it would all be sure. yeah, chop. But like that has fallen out of vogue, and now we get like, first of all, just hand to hand combat in general is out of vogue. Like we get sure. stoic mute cgi action figures who throw each other through planes and don't make a noise doing it but other but other global cinemas you know still i mean there's still wuxia films all the time there's still it it, it just it feels so weird to position it as like such a at least what i read as such a western masculinity you mean the scene or yes the scene Uh, so i guess I, I guess I'm partly well, it, asking it is, where everybody it is came through from his, on this one. It's through Brad Pitt's vision of what that sequence would actually end up doing, right? So he, of course, he would kick Bruce Lee's ass. Okay, so did you guys think it was flashback or imagined? A flashback. I thought it was a flashback. Oh, it's a flashback. See, this I, is the I, thing. I, I think it's ambiguous. I was, I, I do. I'm surprised it's been this ambiguous. It feels like a flashback to me, certainly. I was. I was I was confused at first because I was like I think that was him envisioning how badly it would go and the other part of me was like maybe it's actually what happened and why he knows he shouldn't go there and like try to get a job but the chronology was weird I I, I have to give credit I, I forced Carnum uh, Minas was talking about this on Twitter he, he was mentioning that it was for the Green Hornet mm-hmm. so it's a yeah. present tense thing like it wasn't like bounty law or anything. Like it was right. such a specific yeah. idealized fantasy that I, I'm not sure that it like supports the idea that it's not a, a flashback. Because if it was current, wouldn't it be um, – wait, it, I'm trying to remember what set he drops Leo off at. Lancer. Well, it's, it's, it's not Lancer. that it's it's current. It's that it's imagined, right? But yeah, he, he would have been – on the set of Lancer if if yes. his vision was was present tense. right and so my my thought was like is, is he just not even aware of what kind of show his friend is doing because <laughs> he's not going to be on it but yeah I think it was a flashback but there was a um 
there was a birth movies death interview with uh the actor who plays him uh who's uh mike mo yeah yeah and um and he brought up the fact that like people keep talking about like brad pitt defeating him and he's like they didn't get to he didn't get defeated the fight was stopped it's a like draw Mm. by by virtue of someone coming in and yelling at two people who work for them you Mm -hmm. know but like and he 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 talked through it basically the same way that I saw it, which is Cliff gets his ass kicked immediately, mm-hmm. and then yeah. you know the Bruce, Bruce Lee gets a little like cocky, thinks he can do the exact same thing, but Cliff is able to counter, and then at that point they finally are kind of like both operating at full power. But I legitimately believe that Bruce Lee would win that fight. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, for sure. He's, he's not Cliff is only countering in that entire fight, if I recall it correctly. Like, it doesn't seem as though Cliff is going to be able to land a punch. Well, and so that's that's like that's how I saw it. And and I think that in a in a situation like this, it's a way for the movie to have fun by actually having Bruce Lee play a like a purpose beyond just showing him teaching other people how to fight, which he does. Yeah. And that's a a nice scene too later. Yeah. That was, that was like a weirdly like cute, beautiful little scene that I really enjoyed, but also it lets you know that Cliff is not just, you know, a, a pretty boy actor who's more comfortable falling off a horse. Like he's got some power to him. And but I, I think, but I love when he's like jumping on the roof. I, I thought that was a great. <laughs> I, I thought that was a great way to show his physicality. Yeah, I, I guess I'm. I guess I'm showing my bias here in how I interpreted this fight scene. But it, it's just, it's just fascinating to me, and I'm still racking my brain about it in the same way that I'm racking it about the ambiguous scene where his ex-wife is kind of such a grotesquerie she's just you know the nagging wife archetype and maybe he accidentally killed her maybe he really killed her and it's just it's just so interesting those two scenes operate like almost no other tarantino scene i can think of like his his scene his films are so often present so to have this sense of like subjective reality is throwing me so much, if that makes sense. Hmm. I mean, yeah, I guess maybe because they are tied specifically to a person's flashback rather than the sort of structure, like say Pulp Fiction or something like that. Um, but I, I do, I do think. But before we go on to the actual, like, to to the scene of of his wife's sure. potential murder, I think that the one of the things that really makes the Bruce Lee scene work for me is that it's that it's done at least for the first part through the first round or so it's and and before that it's this long take of mm-hmm. Bruce Lee speaking and I think that Tarantino truly mm-hmm. does believe in what Bruce Lee is saying in this very uh I, I guess you could say like this very uh prideful but in a way that feels very reinforced by what we know about Bruce Lee, but by his legendary status. And I think that, that, that I think it might be the longest shot in the film and yeah, it's his, him just speaking at length. And it feels like the closest thing that the film, which otherwise is so, like you say, present. And so, um, so, so in its time, 
that it's the closest that he comes to making an actual icon to creating an actual mm. legend in, in the actual film. So I think it works because of that and that in integrating Cliff Booth's character into this sort of legendary status makes this sense. It creates this sense of Hollywood as developing. And I think, I think it works, works really well. Uh, but to your point about the, about that sort of past tense sort of thing, it is interesting because I think this is, even though of course he's done film set in the past before, this is the one that feels the most overtly rooted in a very specific time. And that's signaled by the, by the, use of of actual dates of actual like pinpoint accuracy especially on the last day and i think that it's interesting that he has those things coexisting with each other that flashback this vague sort of sensation that may or may not be a heightened fantasy or heightened version of reality and this very concrete sense of this is where this person is at this time on this specific day so i think that is really interesting sort of dynamic that he establishes throughout the film i i think it's even weirder too than that like i i again this is not a flaw but i think it's fascinating that he you know gives such a triumphant as much as it's during a trip a triumphant <laughs> moment during the climax mm-hmm. that i i mean maybe this is just him saying oh look at this incredibly flawed character who i'm giving a, a great moment but like it's it's those choices that just seem, yeah, unresolved. And again, is a word I just keep coming back to in a way, again, that doesn't feel like Tarantino to me. Because even when I like him at the the most, I mean, he is he's a blunt theatrical filmmaker. Like that's <laughs> totally fine. It's just he is. He doesn't leave things, especially morally. Yeah, so right. ambiguous. <laughs> I um, yeah, I think there's there's a lot to that scene that that we learn about Cliff that we kind of didn't see before. You know, like we learn that he's a war hero, mm-hmm. and yes. we see him fighting Bruce Lee. And Bruce Lee that that speech that he gives, in its writing and in its acting, is so perfect. It's right. so good. Like, I I think it, I I would not be surprised if that's pulled from somewhere else. Yeah, I um I rarely get a chance to play this on the uh, the the actual podcast, so this is my favorite thing that any human being has ever said or done. I'm going to play it right now. This is what it is, okay? I said, empty your mind, be formless, shapeless, like water. Now you put water into a cup, it becomes the cup. You put water into a bottle, it becomes the bottle. You put it in a teapot, it becomes the teapot. Now water can flow or it can crash. Be water, my friend. Amazing. Yeah, that, that's yeah. great. <laughs> and so I'm watching that scene and I'm like, this if this if this is not some speech that he gave once. If this is something that Tarantino has dreamed up, like that's a man who truly loves values and appreciates Bruce Lee, like just mm-hmm. so good. And and Mike Mo in that performance is just fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, as to the as to the end, it is it is kind of weird because we don't get any hard answers 
about Cliff and everything that we know about even Rick is that he's like kind of a just like a real wreck of a human being. <laughs> he's mm-hmm. yeah. He's he's a that freak out in the trailer <laughs> aside from being a great comedic set piece also says it's like so much about him as a person and it's eight it's whiskey of, sours was too many whiskey sours. <laughs> i um i have had that conversation with myself <laughs> about that very drink back when i was in in college i would uh because you know you go to the bar and like if you just drank straight whiskey Sure. People would think you were weird. And, you know, so you'd go up and you'd be like, uh, I don't know, like a whiskey sour, I guess. And the next day it would just be like, there are eight of them. Yeah, like three or four would have been fine, but you had to do eight. And then I think at some point he says, you don't even like them. <laughs> Which, again, is something that I have said to myself. And, um, yeah, so there you see, like, his real struggle with, like, his alcoholism and his deep-seated insecurities and it's it's interesting that in a lot of Tarantino films, you have these people who speak very openly and honestly to each other about the ways that they are. And this is one of the yeah. few movies where you have to kind of take those single moments of like self-reflection and then apply that to everything else. Because outside of that, these guys are trying to play it cool. Mm-hmm. And you see Cliff when he goes to Spawn Ranch, you know, has this very firm sense of like making sure that people that he's even ancillarily aware of like are okay Mm -hmm. yeah but still he's not yeah he's he's smartly not made into like a whole cloth hero though like i mean it's not yeah he batters that hippie yeah, he not only batters that hippie, but like the whole scene before that, where it's like the only real reason he's not gonna, you know, have oral uh, get oral sex from the woman is that she's too young. Like, like you know, there's still the edge to him that you know he's not our hero. And I, I think, I think. Well, it, hold on, say that again. I, that he is not – I said he's not our hero, but I'm saying he's not a, a typical hero. That There's a sense of of danger and pragmatism to him that doesn't make him um, – Right. It's not like he's a – Typical. A, he's not like a romantic who's like, no, I only sleep with people sure. I love. Oh. Okay. Which is why I do find – some of the some of the arguments about you know whether he's meant to be seen as a hero and anti-hero pushing yes i know it is in the manson family but i i think some of that is interesting because even though it's in line with tarantino's violence like it's it's that brutality that you know as you're saying like romantic heroes don't beat someone's face into a pulp even when they're even when they're you know abuse psycho uh you know cult members (laughs) like it's i mean that's that's kind of the thing is that like if you walk into this movie looking for like a clean morality i don't think you're gonna find it like and i i I don't know why you would expect it like but it is usually there (laughs) i mean yeah but like in this like after spending close to three hours with these people like to to believe that there's a point at which they're going to like make a firm statement about them one way or the other. It seems a little, a little strange to me. Mm-hmm. I mean, Cliff is able to overcome these people because he is clearly a man well acquainted with violence. 
And Rick is able to deal with it purely because he's used to operating best when he's in a panic. <laughs> yeah. And uh, because he he was able to keep that flamethrower. Yeah. <laughs> and it still works. In his shed. Yeah. yeah. It's uh, my favorite... I'm going to say that a lot. Uh, there's a lot of great parts in this movie. and But one of my favorite little like meaningless cutaways is when they're at talking to him about the flamethrower. It's like, you know, you actually got to use that flamethrower. It cuts to him like learning how to use the flamethrower. He's <laughs> like, it's, it's really hot. Is there anything we could do about that? And the guy is just like, it's a flamethrower. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I like I like how his, his reaction, though, is like he seems to be kind of afraid of it and he's enjoying it at the same time. And then you see him shut off and he kind of like shakes his hand and it's just like, yeah, I didn't think about how hot that would actually get either. I guess, I guess, you know, throwing the flame. It shouldn't be hot where I am. (laughs) What does he say? He he calls it the dragon or someone calls it dragon dragon at some some point. (laughs) Yeah. I think it's great how much of a, kind of like actors doofus uh leo is in this i, I mean it's i i don't know I, maybe i'm just speaking for myself like I, I i've had good actor interviews but i always find acting interviews so much more difficult to talk to than directors or writers or anything mm-hmm. like that just because it's there's just like i was just saying the part how i was told to say it and it's i, I think there's a great like real real purity but also a real uh, style to the way that leo says things where he's you know you don't expect him to have real input but he still knows how to deliver those lines on the page in a way that others can't you know when the sound of music nazi uh is directing him did you guys notice that by the way (laughs) I thought he was one of the Von Trapp children. Oh, it was the Von Trapp children. Yes. Yeah. I'm sorry. Maybe not. A, maybe the, hopefully those children did not grow up to be Nazis. That would be awkward. Yeah, hopefully. <laughs> um, what was I going to say? His, his, his whole moment with that, uh, the girl who was playing uh, the, the Lancer daughter. Yes. What a, like, what a scene. Like, and again, uh, this is a scene that I feel like, I haven't seen really in a Tarantino movie where a character just has like a full fledged breakdown in like a very like vulnerable and emotional way where he's talking about this book and the parallel between the book and his own life is so overwhelming that he just starts to cry. The Bronco Wrangler. Yeah. (laughs) And then, you know, he's talking to this girl and his job in his own mind almost becomes like, I want to like prove to this girl that like, I am good enough to act alongside of her. Yeah. It's, it's such a perfect lead up uh, to, to that scene too. that the kind of awkwardness and how he spits <laughs> right before. <laughs> and she's like, she's like, Oh geez, who is this guy? Like it's a, it, it's, that is one of the best scenes of just his, his fallen stardom. Yeah, it was it was really sad. It was really touching. And that makes the that makes the end of the movie where he's just kind of this bewildered guy being invited in to talk to these other people, you know, people who have like ascendant careers who he admires and who maybe don't admire him, but like mm-hmm. have a familiarity with him that binds them in some way. 
Jeez, mm-hmm. I, I, I the the way that he kind of like inches up to the intercom. Mm. After yeah, she like continues talking to him. It, it's it, yeah, it's it's those moments that show a real familiarity with just how people talk to each other in in Hollywood. Like I, I just get a sense that he's been here a while. I just. I don't know. Part of me just wishes this, this was just them bumming around just, just uh, for three hours, just uh digressive 22 short films about Springfield. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but that's, that's, that's kind of like his, his, I would like to say Pulp Fiction, like just a bunch of random people puttering around and sometimes fumbling into each other. Sure. I, I sort of like the arc that this movie is kind of drawing out. And the things that they're talking about. I mean, it's impossible for it to not end in violence, but you know, it's my favorite part of that though, is that when it's over, it would be easy for a movie by someone else that that's about the Manson murders to be like, well, like what a harrowing ordeal we went through. And thank God, you know, the, no one else will be hurt by these rapscallions. And he's just like, Oh, these fucking hippies that were, they were on something or I don't know. They're dead now, though. Uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. It was just to them. It was just this insane, random ass thing that a bunch of drugged out hippies probably did. And like they have no knowledge of the wider context of it. I, well, a lot of people pointed out that ellipsis is a ellipses is a perfect way to kind of foreshadow the darkness. You know, once upon a time you have the fantasy, but only in Hollywood can something this, you know, absurd and gratuitous happen. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I think, I think that's the, really the main, I think the two things that really make the ending work for me, I think that, and that make it a really vital aspect to the film as a whole is a uh, Susan Atkins speech in the car about like when she's talking about how Hollywood has created this violence and mm. be the, the flamethrower. I think that, be, and I guess not just the flamethrower, but other things that are used as sort of a means of violence in the, during the actual assault you have, especially the one, the two that really got to me, aside from the flamethrower, were when Brad Pitt smashes, I think it was Tex Watson, but I'm not quite sure, but te- smashes one people into first a telephone and then into one of Rick's movie posters of himself. And I think mm-hmm. that you have throughout the mm-hmm. throughout this entire scene, the emphasis is on the actual artifacts of of basically Hollywood, of basically this means of production of, or of this image and icon creating things, which are then passed on to the that are passed on to the hippies who who are trying to revolt against this sort of indoctrination. And I think it's really important too that. Susan Atkins, I don't think, like in that scene, she says that she doesn't know who Rick Dalton is, whereas it's Tex and the woman sitting in the front who are who are familiar with his work on Boundary Law. And it's and it's directed, it's definitely directed towards Rick because he just happens to bubble into it and he's yelling at them and he presents this sort of this immediate threat or this immediate obstacle. But it is also a more general depiction of Hollywood, even if it's very specific to these particular people, both fictional and real. It is 
the film as a whole seems to suggest this larger depiction that I think really is that really emphasizes that sense of a place of a space of of a particular sense of time that I think is really key to the success of the film. Yeah, no, I, I I hadn't thought about how much there is such an emphasis on props in, in the climax. I, I think you're you're right on there that they really are hammering that home in it in a way, hammering it home. And I, I think it's fascinating. You know, for a long time, I was uncomfortable with how much I liked the ending of Inglorious Bastards. Really? And I, I was more comfortable if it was somehow scolding me uh, for liking it. And I think it's fascinating how much this one doesn't feel like it's scolding the audience, even as we're speaking about that that monologue in the car. Like, there is still a sense of how much the Mansons, the, the Manson, I don't know, what should I call them, brood? The Manson brood is is tethered to entertainment. Like, mm-hmm. uh, like you know, we, we hear, obviously, about Bruce Dern and uh, Squeaky, you know, watching FBI and uh, <laughs> something else together. and Bonanza, I think. Yes, and, and Bonanza. Like, like enter- entertainment still very much controls their life. Like it's so perfect that they have a set time where they have to go in front of the TV to mm-hmm. to watch something. Like if in he a falls sense, asleep, she gets pissed. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> even though he can't see. <laughs> I I do love too when he's like, "What does she do when you fall asleep?" And he's like, "Nothing." <laughs> yeah, she's like <laughs> mad. She's pissed off. Like no one wants to deal with a woman who's pissed off. I um some things that I felt during that ending were I I I mean I was very nervous going up to it because even though he hasn't done it much lately I still picture Quentin Tarantino as the guy who made Reservoir Dogs you know all these people getting shot a dude gets his fucking ear sawn off you know everyone dies at the end <laughs> Like, he was a scary, violent filmmaker. But he does have this kind of fairy tale morality where, like, I was watching this movie and I was like, I swear to God, if that fucking dog dies, I'm going to be pissed off. (laughs) (laughs) And I feel like he, he knows the tone that he's setting through, like, that entire final 20 to 30 minutes. Where, like, you know, Tate and her people go to uh, El Coyote and Rick and Cliff go to a slightly worse Mexican restaurant and they go home and all this stuff is happening and the car is outside and Rick comes and yells at them and Cliff is gone. He's not Eli Roth. (laughs) Right. Like, but like my my brain is like, this is all the setup for everything to go terribly wrong. (laughs) But then... And and again, like Cliff is out on a walk, so maybe he's gonna be gone. And then, but oh, he's also smoking an acid dipped cigarette, <laughs> so that's also gonna be possibly a problem. And then my brain was like, "What if I just went through this whole thing and it snaps back, and it turns out that he just imagined it in his acid state?" Yeah. And then we watch him get murdered. I'm gonna be furious. But instead, we get a pretty cathartic, funny ending that involves the brutal murder of these three people. Who sure. came to cause havoc. And um, 
I didn't have a problem with that. I I felt no shame about enjoying watching that happen. Well, much lands in the same way that so I, much differently than any other Tarantino movie. In what Wait, you way? said it? Oh, go ahead. No, uh, no, 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 uh, Ryan, you can go ahead. No, no, you, you said it ends differently, or or that it, lands. Oh, lands. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. Did you want me to explain further, Brian? Or, or do you? Yeah, I'm, I'm curious about that because I feel like Inglorious Bastards has a similar landing. Yeah, but I, I think that is still an intent to commit revenge. Like I, I, I uh, before we started recording, I, I was actually in the middle of the climax of Inglorious Bastards, and the build up to that, you know, you know what's going to happen. You're just waiting for it to happen. And, you know, there's obviously a sense of suspense and deliberation to the final sequence here, but it's also a lot more madcap. It's, it's a lot less, uh, about like these precise orchestrations. Like there's obvious, like it's a set piece, but it, it's no more a set piece than any of the monologues that are earlier in the film. So you're saying like, like it's not like the the ending of Inglorious Bastards could be viewed as like a heist. Yeah. Like a meticulous yeah. plan. And this is just like a bunch of people pell-mell beating the shit out of each other. Same same with like the uh, you know the the end of Django. Like that is such a, a carefully planned thing with, you know, it's uh the stairs are a big part of it and mm. You know, like the sense of space in this is it's it's not it's not obvious. Like as as Ryan was saying, like it's centered around objects, but it's not like we're seeing them completely move around. And, and I was talking to my um, I was talking to Emily, my girlfriend, about this. It, like it, th- there were times where I wasn't exactly sure what was happening to the one whose face was getting gnawed off. Like the way that this is cut, it's, it's not, it's not inscrutable at all, but it is less, you know, like Inglorious has parts where they have a, an MP40 and, you know, you just see them spraying a clip into a single person in slow motion. And that's like, (laughs) that's not this. It's, it's, this has such a different, uh, rhythm and and pacing and sense of claustrophobia with with uh, but also allowing you to have fun like it's a it's a very strange balance that i don't i don't think he's achieved before in such a in such a melancholy way i guess you could arguably say the end of hateful eight is so would uh, you say that the, it's like it's it's growth that he's able to do it or do you think it's like weird confusion that he's able to do it <sighs> I do agree with. Go ahead. No, Ryan, please. Oh, I, I I do agree with that. Like, it does feel different. Like, even with the end of Faithful Eight, I think partly because the lines are are a little bit more clearly defined in in sort of a Jennifer Jason Lee's clear evil in in that very almost almost uh, like black and white sort of way. Actually, almost almost literally black and white way in, in that film, uh, but like, but like, and there too, like, it uses in that final scene where where uh, she's trying to get the gun while while Samuel Jackson is lying in bed trying to trying to urge uh, urge Walton Goggins to, to get his gun. You have that sense, like that is done in slow motion in a very suspenseful way. In this way, this one is 
definitely, I guess in some ways it operates more closely to that, to that Inglorious Bastards mold of this all out violence, but because it's directed towards these individual figures, I think, and because the violence is shown in such, in such detail amid this sort of pell-mell sort of execution that I think it does achieve this much more ambivalence view of the violence and, and of mm. the carnage that is being wrecked. And I think that even though it can be funny to a certain extent, and it can be like, just because of how much he introduces into it, the actual violence itself doesn't feel necessarily that funny to me. And so it is definitely this very tricky tonal balance that I think really that it functions essentially as an extension of that sort of aimless drifting feeling of the rest of the film. I think it's a very fascinating way to approach that violence. And I think that it works quite well for the film. It's it's even interesting compared to, you know, maybe the only sequence of violence as I think about it before that, which is, you know, uh, Brad Pitt having it out with that uh, hippie's face. Like, right. like, like, like that sequence is, uh, I mean, that's actually in slow motion, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, right, right. And then that actually struck me as a very strange choice um, at, in the moment. But I think that linking those two scenes together it does uh, it does really make for an, uh, a productive juxtaposition. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought the setup on that, uh, I'm trying to remember exactly. It's been a few days now. But the, the setup, I remember being very strange, though it's so it – it looks like almost Brad Pitt's body is almost covering the entirety of him until he just kind of hits the ground really hard. <laughs> like it's, mm-hmm. it's very much like it's blocked in a way that uh, is block. God damn it. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it, sorry. I, I think that's the best example of how it uh, differs from me, Brian, but like, Oh man, that second question. I'd, I don't know. I don't know if I really, think that this is the same level of growth as some other people do there is just i do wish there was something that did feel more radical to me in this and for as many for as much as i've praised a number of things that feel like a variation on things he's done i just i don't know i sometimes i just think that his energy can be exhausting. <laughs> just, uh, <laughs> and I, I've seen some people just call that a masculine energy. And I feel like that's reductive because that's not totally what it is. But I think also, you know, when I speak about the impossibility that this doesn't end in violence, you know, in, in, a, as a generalization, I, I think that's, why people often do that is because they just link masculinity and, and, and violence, which is there was a part of me that unfair. legitimately thought that maybe they would just drive away just because Rick shot at them. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I had I did have that going through my mind. It would have been it would have been fun to see that. It's like what Especially- if they what if they just got shouted by an old TV star and they were just like, Wow, that was fucked up. We're leaving. That's a good scene. That's a good scene. Yeah. yeah. And hit him angrily uh, drinking straight from his blender of margaritas <laughs> right in their face <laughs> yes yes oh my god i um i really so like about that scene i will just say i loved i loved brandy in that scene her like really great dog acting sure um mm-hmm. the way that she like barks and he thinks it's about the food 
Yeah. But yeah. she's like still such a, you know, I apologize for using an overused term, but she's still such a good dog that she's like, all right, well, I've got to stay here and I've got to try to be quiet, but oh my God, someone's coming. <laughs> and she stands up and he gives her like the, the sign to like stay where she is. And she holds until he clicks and then she goes for it. And I was just like, mm. oh, fuck yeah, this dog. Yeah, she's just, a great dog. It's she's a great, great movie dog. dog. She's going to win a stagey probably. <laughs> And um, yeah, that whole scene, I, I, I felt like I was. <sighs> Do you see this as growth, Brian? I, I'm curious. I, I see it as maturity, at least. That. Like, I think that there's something to this. Like those are two movie. different statements. Yeah, growth, growth and maturity, and maturity or... are two different statements. I would say growth would be okay. like if I felt like he was. I think maturity is a little more cerebral. Maybe it's like a, a change in outlook, not just a change in execution. Okay. All right. I, I can understand that. Yeah. Uh, I look forward to getting into semantic arguments with people about that for a couple of days. <laughs> Cause yeah, I just like thinking about like a human body. It's like, Oh, Jimmy, you've grown. And then Jimmy tells a fart joke and it's like, but you haven't matured. Have you Jimmy? You know, clearly so like some things have picked up, but your brain is still in the same mush state. So what feels more mature about this outlook to you? I, th- I think, like I said, like in, in Inglorious Bastards, it was kind of a fun, like proto retro revenge type of thing. I don't even know how to put it because clearly they killed Hitler a lot earlier than we killed him in real life. But like, you know, revenge <laughs> for everything that he had done by that point and everything we knew he would do. And in this movie, like I said, it's it's just a fucking accident. And it's just kind of this... This whole idea of like, instead of if only we'd sent people out to murder the Mansons, it's like, you know, but for a twist of fate, like maybe this wouldn't have happened. And this is how I see that playing out and what would have been saved and what would have been nurtured to continue moving forward. I also think that his treatment of Rick's um, insecurity feels very mature of him, you know, giving him that freak out, but then also like grounding it in everything that he's been through and the fact that he's not like some prima donna who's like i didn't get small the pictures got small you know he's just very aware that like he didn't capitalize correctly he didn't get the break that he thought that he was gonna and he he's kind of allowed that to affect the way that he works so that now this is all he's doing Hmm. but then he comes back after giving that great performance on that tv show and he gets these spaghetti westerns and stuff and he he puts himself into them and he comes back with a wife who we have every is, reason to believe he actually likes. Well, see, I don't know about that. We don't see anything that oh, would make okay. us think that he doesn't like her. No, I know, but why show? Oh, jeez. Why? Why am I? I feel like I'm going to make enemies on this podcast for some reason. <laughs> uh, show her snoring. Yes, I think the first snoring scene is great. I don't understand the second snoring scene. <laughs> The first snoring scene I'm speaking of is I, I think the Margot Robbie where she's like in the bed and looks angelic and uh, you we didn't talk about a foot fetish at all. Good job. Uh, we got we so far without fetish. talking about feet. I know. Michael I know. just went and I, fucked it all up. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm just saying when the bottom of the feet were dirty, that was that was a lot. Okay. Okay. Wait, but I was oh. a fan of that. No, I was a fan of that too. But what I'm saying is the first time. Where, where Margot Robbie is snoring, I, I think that one is fine. And I think that's a, a great play on the the kind of like uh, cherubic 
innocence that I think she symbolizes or is in danger of symbolizing. Mm-hmm. But I think that the wife scene is it just it felt very strange to me and felt in the same register as like the shrewish wife in the flashback. Like there was just something how she only speaks Italian about how the first time we see her, she's snoring and he's his look isn't of disdain or like instant regret, but it's ambiguous enough where I'm questioning. It. Well, let's, let's look at how sure. that sequence is set up, right? He's, he's just got back from Rome, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. And yeah. like, you know, he's he's kind of living that high life, but it's also talking about how he also lived the high life while over there and half of his money basically went to wherever he was living. Yeah. So yeah. he didn't actually come back with a lot of money. In fact, he basically came back with just basically, oh, I lived over there and now I am not in debt for that, but probably I don't, I have a couple of extra thousand dollars. Like, you know, and there's the conversation it, with cliff as well. And, right. and so he's talking about like leaving his house. It's yeah. one of those reality things where it's like, and then they mentioned that he's got this fantastic new, uh, wife and it's like, but the reality is also a little bit changed because while yes, it does show her snoring and yes, it does kind of give you that impression that maybe she isn't glamorous or maybe she, you know, she's, she's got that rough edge or kind of a flaw that maybe someone else would have just dumped her on the side of the road or whatever. Right. But then when they get to the airport, what is she? She's fabulous again. Right. And so it's, it's one of those things where they're, he's playing with it. He's saying, yes, he got this fantastic wife. By the way, she snores. Not as a doesn't that suck, but as a, you know, you can't kind of win at all kind of situation. Right. So, so like his life is just never going to be that kind of perfect situation where it's like, Oh, you know, I don't have anything to complain about. No, he's, he's always going to have something to fucking complain about. No matter, even if he's got a hot wife that, that speaks Italian, like it doesn't matter. He's, he's still going to look over and be like, ah, and she's snoring, but you know, it is what it is. I don't know. So she throws a punch at one of the invaders and that's uh, uh, my, that counts for a yeah, my theater and myself went went fucking bananas when that happened. I was <laughs> like, I was like, yes, this is my kind of ending right now. I think that's when she speaks English. Also, she says something along the lines of, "How dare you invade my house, motherfucker!" And yeah, she's awesome. uh, one of the women. Mm-hmm. I think she's from Knock Knock. I think that's the only thing I've ever seen her in. So. Oh yeah, she 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 was uh, married to Eli Roth. I think. Oh, okay, that yeah. that makes sense. Yeah, I, I, I guess. Uh, yeah, I don't. I don't know. I don't. It's, it's a complicated. I, it's a complicated relationship, right? It, it's it's not giving you an easy one way or the other because she's definitely she's definitely shown in her non glamorous sense, but then she's also shown in that airport and she looks fucking fabulous. Right. And you know, I mean, even even his buddy uh, is is a Cliff. I think it's Cliff. Um, Brad Pitt. His his yeah yeah uh, his. his 
his buddy is like, go home to your hot wife. Like, what the yeah. fuck is wrong with you? Like, don't come, don't come bother me. Don't come to the hospital that, with me. Like, yeah. stay with your hot wife. But yeah. I think it's, I, I think it's also, you know, that when you look at past Tarantino, uh, uh, my experience with Tarantino in the past is that, for at least for recent films, I, I feel more of an imbalance, a, a gender imbalance, and it, it's not, it's not about quotas. It's just rather about a sense that you know even the some of my favorite female characters in Tarantino films they so often meet such uh such cruel uh, endings I, I think that's what it is, well, she is didn't. it's just the no she didn't and but neither, but neither did still, Tate <laughs> but I but I'm still saying that the snoring along with the flashback along with the fact that it is Brian, I know you can probably speak to that. So the the exact people who are um, going to murder Shannon Tate, is, is it two women or three women and a, a man? Yeah. 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 Okay. I then, think I named them all early. It's um, It was Tex, Tex Watson, and then there was one of the girls, and I think it's the one in the movie that runs away, like had just joined the family Maya, that Maya day. Hawk. No, not Maya Hawk. Uh, That's not Maya Hawk? No, I don't think so. Okay. There, there's a whole article. Oh, it is. All about yeah. this. It is. Yeah. Yeah. Because, but um, yeah. I think she's the girl who had like joined like earlier that day, and um was not a fan of what they were doing, but went along with it anyway. And then I think there was uh Sadie and then uh Patty. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um yeah, so like that that's that's a real. Those no, are that's... all the people. <laughs> yeah. No. I th- yeah. So I will. I will edit what I'm saying. I'm just saying. I think I feel a certain cruelty towards women that I feel uh, I feel awkward about it often at the end. And I, I will say I had this with Inglorious Bastards because I forgot uh, one of the main women <laughs> died. Sure, two, the, the two main women died. Diane Kruger and Melanie Laurent. Almost everyone dies in that yeah. movie. This is the thing I don't understand I about know. these kinds of criticisms. Uh, is that he is, by numbers, no. probably killed three times as many men as women, and if you include the crazy 88, that number skyrockets. No, 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 but yeah, they're, yeah. They shot Marvin in the face. Body counts. <laughs> yeah, but like, the problem As is a like, joke. Pussycat, Pussycat is like, a, you know, a sex pot who he shoots every time from her legs up to her Daisy Dukes. Like, it's, it's, it's the way that each of these female characters is handled, which is why it feels homogenous and and weird compared to how male characters are treated in i could say the last like four like oh man carrie washington's just terrible and uh hold on hold on hold on chained i mean and you have jennifer jason lee in hateful eight who's batted around can we not talk about how brad pitt is shot in this fucking movie are you kidding me That's a good point. I, I, had, a, I, I, I had a hard on that touched the screen. What are you talking Whoa, about? First of what all, that's the grossest thing you've ever said. Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> I have never heard so many straight men of heart. Thank you so much, ladies and gentlemen, for joining us. Tune in next week. When... <laughs> yes, he has a nice chest. There are other men. Um, I, I'm, I had a hard I on the touch the screen when Scoot think... McNary was on the page. <laughs> we didn't talk about scoots <laughs> there's a lot that we still haven't talked about that i need to fit in under the wire um 
Timothy I'm saying those are not the same thing. How how Brad is shot in one scene is not the same of how as how Margaret Qualley, who I think is fantastic, is shot in every scene. Like I, that's where the conversations about the imbalance, like as much as they quickly go to problematic and you know like oh we should just ignore Tarantino. That's not what it is, but like. Well, when I, it, when you then ask me like does he grow as a filmmaker do I feel like he's giving more uh options to characters do I feel like he's doing new things the answer to me is no well here's the thing Quayle is first shown in a dumpster and yeah. then she's shown carrying a thing of pickles and like Cliff is clearly seeing her around and is slowly becoming used to her and is sure. is drawn in by her and like I don't think it is a problem for the movie to show us an omniscient but point of view, like, view of her in that way. And once he has discovered the way that they're kind of, like, taking advantage of George, we don't see that again. Mm-hmm. Like, the spell has been broken, and suddenly she's not this super hot hippie chick. She is a part of this dirty rabble that he feels is taking advantage of his workplace acquaintance. Sure. Like acquaintance feels even too personal. I couldn't think of like a less impersonal, but still slightly. But I mean, you know, that's kind of the thing though. And like this, this is how like they got their people. It's like, we have a bunch of hot hot girls here who are good to go. Like that's why Spawn let them stay at the ranch because Squeaky was hanging out with him. And hanging out is the stupidest, most immature way to say that she was like servicing him sexually. Like, Charlie Manson started out as a pimp. Like, there is a level of just verisimilitude to that. But also, like, I don't think that the movie lingers on her the way that, I don't know, like, Zack Snyder lingers on Wonder Woman and Justice League. You know? I mean, yeah, you're also comparing... I don't have a metaphor here. Um, <laughs> Apples to... Oranges? Busty oranges, sure. Please don't. Um, <laughs> don't sexualize oranges. <laughs> That's, no, don't do that. Sorry, I I don't know. I've 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 said my piece about this, and I know I'm already gonna get certain people being like, I, "Oh, talking about being problematic, huh?" I think that there and is I no problem with looking die. at that. I think, however, that the <laughs> that that the concept of showing a woman snoring and showing off Margaret Qualley's body in that way, and then trying to say that like the murdering of the the cultists which is a weird thing to say, um, is like, you know, analogous to, to anything that could be seen as like, I don't know, celebratory or something like Quentin Tarantino has butchered so many men in his movies and treated a lot of men just as bad or worse than the women characters. But when have the women been enshrined except for small exceptions? I'm enshrined? genuinely asking. I, I think that the male Tarantino leads, you know, whether you want to talk about the Leo and Brad here, whether you want to talk about Hateful Eight's Hard, because that's an ensemble. So I'll skip through that. Uh, Django, I, on the level of Jamie Foxx or Christoph Waltz, who's the lead there, I'm, I'm never going to give that up. Um, <laughs> you, you know, like, I don't think that he is as... I I don't know. I feel like I'm just going to talk in circles here. Well, so yeah, we can but like, move on. It's yeah, okay. What do you, what, like you just feel like he cares more about his men than his women. 
I just don't think he's as generous to his women as his men, with with small exceptions. I mean, I think that you have you have Jackie Brown, you have you have the bride, you have the woman sure. in the second half of Death Proof. I think even Melanie Laurent uh, in Inglourious Bastards, I think is one of like is incredibly fascinating character. I think mm-hmm. one that's given a lot of generosity. Of course, that doesn't necessarily preclude any. Happy endings. <laughs> I mean, happy endings, sure. But I mean, there there is definitely, I think, a le- a strong level of respect that he gives to to many women, if not necessarily all all women. Yeah, uh, I mean, I, I I just want to say I, I I hate that I'm making this, I, I'm making generalizations in this sense. It's just you know, it's the ineffable thing that I felt and been unable to shake for for some things. I so. um. I have heard people say that and I just have a real hard time just accepting it from a numbers standpoint and like from the movies themselves. Like, like Ryan said, we've got The Bride. We've got two whole movies about how goddamn kick-ass Uma Thurman is. And then within the, that movie, you got the, the Viper Assassin Squad, which is, again, nothing but a bunch of kick-ass women. And Michael Madsen. And Michael Madsen, but, you know, <laughs> it's, you know, he's got the hair. Um <laughs> And then you got Jackie Brown and then you got Shoshana, who is just friggin awesome and is responsible in many ways for being the reason that like this is the thing about Inglorious Bastards. Even if Christoph Waltz had like ruined all of the Bastards' work, Shoshana still would have murdered everyone. So the Bastards are a hat on a hat. You know what? They're a hat on a hat. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) All right. (laughs) I mean... Shoshana's great. Shoshana has all the stuff. Shoshana r- ran away from her family that had just been butchered, started a new life for herself, was running a movie theater, and somehow parlayed that into the destruction of the Third Reich. Sure. And but like- she projects her face on the flames of the burning Nazis and laughs at them. How many times have those characters gone off into the sunset? Jackie Brown, The Bride. Yeah. The women in Death Proof, the second half of Death Proof. Well, yeah, the second half, the first half, he's just been killing. I mean, no, no, but that, that's what I think. What, that's what makes it the like the strong, the most, the strongest Tarantino for me is that sort of that sort of balance, that sort of mm. fusion. And I think that to go, to bring it back to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I think that that's that sent that tension is sort of sustained throughout the entire film. That's sort of both triumph and melancholy existing side by side sometimes in the same moment and of course it's literalized but the the way that he intercuts between sharon tate and rick dalton cliff booth and i think you have that sort of i think it's in ways in in many ways it's meant to be summative of his career to a certain extent but i think because it embodies all of those things at the same time, I think it just brings those qualities, some of his best qualities out to to this extent. Yeah. And I mean, Sharon Tate gets to walk off into the sunset. And not only that, but she didn't even have to go through anything. She's completely spared from everything. And I, I don't know, like how, like, again, literally everyone in Reservoir Dogs dies, except for Mr. Pink, unless you think that like he gets caught by the dragnet of the cops showing up. Uh, John Travolta murdered in uh pulp fiction but mia wallace gets to hang around and bruce willis and uh fabian i think is her name they get to drive off into the sunset 
I see. I, I guess I just disagree about the I mean, yeah, extent to which some of these characters get their endings. That's all. Yeah, I, I do. I agree that there definitely is a difference between fates, between like the general fates and the sort of specifics of it. I I just do. I do think that it definitely varies from film to film, and I think sure. that uh, and from character to character, obviously. So I, I I do get what you're what you're going at. Definitely, it it is definitely a more it is definitely a complex issue, but I think that the way that he manages in the individual moments, not just in the endings, but in the individual moments, he's able to bring out a lot of humanity and a lot of vitality to to the characters, especially here and especially with, yeah. mm-hmm. um, and especially with Sharon Tate. I think just so many little moments, like just before she goes into the movie theater, when she goes into the bookstore and she gets uh she buys a cop the first edition of tessa the durvilles yes um, which plants yeah, directed right yeah uh, with <laughs> nastasha kinski uh and you have you, you definitely have a lot of little moments and i think that one of the only one of the few scenes that tarantino added after can is this one of of sharon tate picking up a hitchhiker and and mm. bringing her a, a certain distance i think that does definitely add uh, and I think that bridges a sort of gap between between the between the establishment between Hollywood, uh, even in this new Hollywood form, and the hippies. But I think that he's able to lend a lot of humanity and just wonderful feeling to to Sharon Tate. And I think that's a really lovely act of, of tribute to a certain extent. Yeah, there, there's a sense of interiority that. Um that I haven't seen in, in I, I mean, we already kind of spoke about how generally like didactic by design Tarantino films are. And a lot of this is watching, you know, people reflecting on some hard truths and just trying to, you know, understand where they are. Yeah. And importantly, they're reflecting on those hard truths in the moment, because I think the film sure. takes place pretty much for 90% of it in the span of, three days basically mm-hmm. you have the first yeah. the that first week or that first two days at the first two 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 hours 15 and then the the rest takes place on august 8th and you have yeah. it's definitely he draws those little moments out through the through the day-to-day quotidian sort of nature of it through brad pitt's subtle shifts in expression as he's driving and sometimes sure. it's it you Sometimes you project your own feelings, your own ideas of what he might be feeling based on the music that's playing, based on how how Tarantino chooses to shoot it. And you definitely, I think that that's something entirely, um, pretty much entirely new for Tarantino. I, I don't know if that's necessarily a, a maturity or simply just because it manages to fit the narrative or what narrative there is. But I think it's, I don't think it's necessarily growth, but or maturity, but it's a it's a difference, and I think that difference is very key to how this film operates and how it manages to stand out, whether for better or for worse, in his his filmography. I think I just, it's important too that it winks at uh, you know these also rans more than you know these establishment classics of the '60s right. or something. Yeah. Like it's it's very easily could have start feeling like shtick. Or you know, uh, lazy pastiche, but it, I think it avoids that. Yeah, and I think that's what makes. Uh, you can go ahead. I was going to say, like Sharon Tate makes fun of Jay Sebring for dancing to 
somewhere yeah. in the Raiders, and <laughs> you know, she's like, I won't tell Jim Morrison. Morrison, <laughs> yeah, that's right. yeah. And you have that really. I think what, and one of the things I guess it's maybe not as prominent as I initially expected it would be, but you have those ruptures, like you have Kurt Russell's narration, um, that that cutaway to Rick in the aftermath of a drunken Drunk car accident, uh, and and you have especially that very strange but i think very important scene at the playboy mansion and like the one time that he literally places this enormous title card saying playboy mansion and then <laughs> on on uh on three characters the middle one being steve mcqueen you have like that's the one time he actually puts title cards saying who they are yeah and like that feels as close as he gets to really making that like to making that a sort of concrete thing that like you must know these people basically but even so that's reflected <laughs> back onto sharon tate where it's this the focus of this scene is is sharon tate as she's dancing and steve mcqueen tells this story and like the and the story is both informative to a certain extent to the audience if they don't know the backstory with jay sebring but also that sort of wistful nature that i think draws that the film draws a lot of its uh its strength from where he you just at the very end of that story, you just have Steve McQueen saying, "I never had a chance," and I think that's really <laughs> it's like it's it's both it's both funny definitely, but it's also I think very revealing of his overall strategy in this film is is this very like 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 as as might be expected very digressive, but also a very narratively driven, but not in a way but in a way that meanders that moves between people in a very productive way. I think. And that Damien Lewis makes a great Steve McQueen. Yes, he does. Yeah. yeah, and that whole scene where he he lays everything out and he says, you know, Jay's around because he knows that someday that, that Polish idiot's <laughs> going to do something wrong. <laughs> Which is, I think, a a a fine allusion to the fact that even without the murder of his wife happening, Roman Polanski still might fuck up somehow. <laughs> and um, I don't. I just I'm. <sighs> How many of any Tarantino characters get to walk off into the sunlight? I think I'm still hung up on that concept because it's like you're asking him to do something for women that he doesn't even really like to do for men. And I think that a lot of this movie is about that concept. Like, yes, he like we don't know what's going to happen to Sharon Tate's career now. It's just nice that Mm -hmm. she's going to get to exist and go on and and not be a punchline from a murder. Right. And then like, that's sure. kind of the thing is like, she goes and like, he, he knows that most people probably know Sharon Tate more from her murder than from any of the movies that she's seen. Cause the movies while hits have not endured, you know, they are the Lancers sure. and bounty laws of their time, but you know, and, he, and neither as wrecking crew. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so he lets us see that and watch her watching herself so that we get that context so that we understand, you know, who she was, not just as a woman who would eventually be brutally murdered with her child still inside of her, but like as a human being and an actor and an artist. And like, you know, that's 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 huge in this in this context. And uh, yeah, I don't know. So I just I just wanted to throw that in there because I just I did like that's such a weird complaint or observation given the way that he I, I get it brian I, I i'm an idiot i got it i don't think you're an idiot i just think like i have heard that from people who are like 
oh, you know, so cruel to women. And it's like, he's real. like, and this is about a lot of different artists that I enjoy, but I'm like, it doesn't really seem to like men either. Like the men get destroyed constantly and in a very bad way. And usually more of them. And I just, I'm not sure at what point it tips into general misanthropy is bad too. <laughs> and at what point you're like, well, do you want him to start treating women like, do you want him to be generally nicer or do you want him to just start treating women nicer? In which case, like, do we brisk going into a Madonna whore kind of thing? And I just, I don't know the, uh, I don't know the answer for that. It it becomes oh, well, a tricky territory to, to mine. Um, well, I think it's a certain like subjugation that, that I feel in, in something like, I mean, hateful eight is, uh, it, it's a little more complicated to talk about given that, yeah, you can argue that it's about misogyny. But, you know, even if we're talking about Inglorious and, uh, you know, in the case of Shoshana, like you compare him to Aldo Rain or um, like, yes, uh, you know, Eli Ross character and uh, not BJ Novak. Yeah, yes. <laughs> yeah, the Jew bear. The bear Jew. Yes, the Jew bear. Like, Johnny the bear yes, Jew. He, um, the, the dynamite on his foot goes off and, and stuff. And, and, you know, he goes out in a in a blaze of glory. But there's something about the way that I, what I feel in a, in a lot of Tarantino films is, is the violence that happens to women so rarely feels, I, it feels reactionary to me and, and it feels like it is very aware of the complexities of watching violence against women, but it, it it also just doesn't feel within the the mode of other violence. You know, like there there are obviously exceptions. Like we can we could talk about this all night, obviously, and I'm not going to do that <laughs> at all. I'm just saying that you know, like, but even then, they're they're kind of weird. Like I, I think of Django, for instance, in the scene where Jamie Fox is uh, prostrate over a. Uh, Prostrate and, you know, about to be um, snipped. Um, like, like, but though that scene is relatively odd other than the end of Pulp Fiction, for instance. Like, men, for instance, are not humiliated in a way that I think women often are. What about the guy who gets in, his ear cut off in Reservoir Dogs? I don't think that's humiliated, though. Like... He's, I mean, he's tied to a chair, he is taunted, he has his ear cut off, and then he is covered in gasoline and about to be immolated. Like, so you need that to happen, like, with him naked and being pointed at no. by school children? That's not... Really? Really? That, that, that was... <laughs> I don't know. Because you're talking about, like, these sort of extremities, but, like, I, I don't feel like Shoshana is hum humiliated either. I mean, the, the fucking Daniel Brule like is playing dead and then turns around and shoots her. So right, she dies in operatic fashion. You have Diane Kruger, who's choked to death by, uh, by, uh, Landa. Uh, yeah. yeah. But okay. But I, you have the, the bride who's buried alive and, uh, is it, is it with sexual violence threatened? Doesn't, with, doesn't Waltz have a Nazi symbol 
dug into his forehead at the I end of that that's, movie? That's the ending, and he's the black and white villain. Like, that's <laughs> I, that's pretty different from Shoshana. I, I know I made a joke earlier about semantic arguments. I am legitimately struggling with understanding how you view the death of Shoshana as a humiliation or anything other than, like, a tragic like Pyrrhic victory because she has murdered this guy. She unfortunately is one of the few characters in the movie who has a soul and she goes to turn him over and he shoots her, but she still wins. And that to me is not a humiliation. That is, that's just, that's just a tragic victory. But All right, you're not giving me an inch, Brian, so that's fine. I'm not <laughs> sure where the inch comes from. I I think I think maybe we're making a mistake by focusing on on main characters rather than like ancillary characters. I think that it definitely could easily be the case. And I think that I agree to some extent with you, Michael, on that that he might give give the ancillary characters less the ancillary female characters less uh less generosity or, or less character substance than, than even his male ancillary characters. I think that that is possible. That, yes. Yeah. I think that that's probably the, the more, cr- the, the greater crux of the argument for sure. his, his less, uh, his less proper treatment of women. I think, I think I would that, say, uh, yeah. Yeah. If I were, if I were to, if I were to look at his treatment of women anywhere, it would be the, the like, the under five characters, you know, as men usually get a little more to do even than, than the women who are at the same level. Uh, while we're talking about Tarantino quirks uh, that are picked over by the internet too much, let's talk about feet. <laughs> God damn it. I have legitimately a one minute long thing to say about feet, and it's it's kind of funny. One minute? <laughs> it's probably not even going to be one minute. I just want to give myself some wiggle room for digressions. Wiggle Like, yes, like little piggies. Um, And that is a digression that feeds into my minute. So in this movie, we see Sharon Tate's feet when she has them on the, the, the chair in the theater. They are a little bit dirty. Dirty. Right. Dirty feet. Then we see They're the hippies little, feet babe. super fucking dirty. <laughs> now, I would have to watch the movie again, but I'm curious if we see anyone else's in like the higher end, like Rick Dalton, Cliff universe, like maybe Rick's wife. If we see her feet, if they're immaculately clean, because I think there's some symbolism there that may have something to do with like, you want to walk on the wild side enough to get a little dirty, but you don't want Margaret Qualley's fucked up feet pressed against your windshield dirty. You don't want all those hippies watching TV in George Spahn's house dirty. You know? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> was that your minute digression? Yeah. That, that was that was not my digression. That was my full on point. That's the thing oh, okay. I wanted to say. Because people I feel kept like bringing I up feet. You. People kept bringing up feet online. I was like, yeah, there are a lot of feet in this movie. But what I'm realizing is that there might be a correlation between the amount of dirt on that foot. And the the moral dirt in this person's soul. <laughs> and I am only half joking. I legitimately think that there is something to be made about that. Because this movie is not like the hippie flower children looking freshly scrubbed and dancing through a field. This is a bunch of dirty, probably smelly hippies living in a dirt farm. Yeah, that place is gross. You see them dumpster diving for food. I mean, like... Sure. They're yeah. freegans. 
the freaks. God damn. <laughs> All right. Um, we've, 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 we've talked about feet. I think, I think it's, it's a good time to wrap this up. I was going to say, are there, I, I feel like I just wanted to once again, shout out Margaret Qualley. Who's in this movie who I loved on leftovers. And it's always good to see her in something. It's good to see Luke Perry in this, even for I I was watching. I was like, is that Luke fucking Perry? Like I had forgotten that this was his final his final posthumous. Yeah, I don't know what to make of the of the Timothy Olyphant scene. I mean, did you guys? Apparently, that's one of the additions. Which one? Or there's more Timothy Olyphant? Yeah, it was it was the the splicings of of um, Rick imagining him in the Gray Escape. Yeah. Oh, that's the one. Okay. Yeah. Where they like yeah. bring up the fact that he almost got cast. Yeah, hmm. uh, I, I like which, like which isn't isn't even close to yeah. the truth. Yeah. yeah, yeah, but I did like that sort of that scene, like especially that sort of the uh, the the jump cuts that use is within it. Like I think it's time to a to a, like a camera shutter. Mm-hmm. I think it like it works. Like if it, it seems like he's almost trying to, even though he never actually shows. It, I think Tarantino's tr- trying to sh- like imply it's almost for the cameras. Essentially, like he's having a publicity photos taken of the two of the two meeting, and like as mm-hmm. a way to sort of lend lend credence to Timothy Oliphant's character. Sure. Um, yeah, I'm not sure if that's exactly the intention, but I think that's a that's another one of the interesting disruptions that he introduces into this very lackadaisical film. I, I think it it works well. And I love having Rick Dalton. This is clearly something that he's thought about before, which is why he's so easily able to conjure the image of himself running McQueen's lines. Yeah. But he's bad. (laughs) He's not good. (laughs) Yeah. And I think that that's part of it. I think like that he, he, you know, would have overextended or, or or again, because that's before he's really like met the girl and you like had that moment of like actually nailing his lines. Like maybe that's all he needed. You said like, say tamale. <laughs> <laughs> uh, play that fiddle. All right. Yeah. Any final thoughts on this movie? I mean, I think it, like uh, just based on our conversation, it's both. It both has. It's both a very rich text in and of itself. I think that it's even more enhanced by its striking differences from Tarantino's output, even as it has a lot of the same contours, I think that mm. it will be seen as something very, very key within his filmography. Um, and I think it's already been seen that way. I mean, we're talking just literally three days after it came out, after his release, and yet we've already had such a uh, pr- prolonged discussion for, for right. better and for worse. This is yeah. the kind of discussion that usually you want to have seen the movie, like, I don't know, 17 times to be able to go into <laughs> yeah. It is. It is interesting. The last thing too to say about that is, it's kind of interesting that this has been almost reclaimed from not like, I don't know. It was kind of mixed at Cannes. Like it wasn't. It wasn't the like triumphant success it's been this past week. So it it is interesting to see such a such a different reception. I mean, the only thing I can think of that has had that similar thing is uh, Peterloo recently. But um, I don't know if it's gone that yeah. far. <laughs> if Peterloo's gone that far, I mean. Uh... Oh Ryan, are you a Peter Lou hater? <laughs> no, I haven't. I haven't seen it. I've just seen that, like, just comparatively, just because Tarantino is that's true. Has the the name brands. Uh, I, I think that is just well, fast. as we all know, like, you know, Tarantino, Scorsese. Those are just 
film franchises Mike for, bros. <laughs> for film bros. I don't have time to get into that. <laughs> oh, I should have brought that up earlier is what you're saying? Yeah, I don't know if you should bring it up. No, that is the type of opinion that should just be buried in the ground. Um, Some Mr. Turner uh, paintings in, in frat houses. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, bro. Like, I've got all the classics here, man. You know, I've got Kundun. I've got Mr. Turner. <laughs> I have a big oh. fan of Roger Michel. So I've got, you know, Enduring Love, Changing Lanes, and The Mother. Oh. I am so excited that Roger Michelle has a new film coming to TIFF. Um, I'm not going to get sidetracked. That's all I'm going to say. I also wanted to say one final thing. Again, as I was saying, the 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 um, people have turned against Charles Manson in a way. And I don't think anyone was ever for him. But I think that people have begun to what? openly hate him in a way that is new. Like People are worried. What, his- what are you talking about? No, no. Well, well, let me finish. So. People used to like make movies that's like Charles Manson, the like demon head of this cult that murdered these people. And in this movie, it's like, here's this fucking idiot and his dumbass cult. We're going to murder some of them and he's not going to get as famous because he didn't do anything. And then you've got Bad Times at the El Royale, which literally has Cynthia Erivo eviscerate a Charles Manson stand in with her words, it, like, you know, saying it's just some dumb asshole who wanted to sleep with whoever he wanted to. And then gets shot by a like st- scarred Vietnam vet. Like we have entered a cultural so sea change where people are like, let me make a movie that alludes to Charles Manson or has Charles Manson so I can embarrass him. I mean, I think that's also the age of the filmmakers as well playing yeah. into that. Oh, like, totally possible. Yeah. You know, it's it's they grew up with that legend and now it's their turn to just kind of go ahead and eviscerate it. Right. And it's not like um, it's not like. It's not like Fincher, who's like the Zodiac. Like, that's a keystone in my brain, and I have to unpack, like, the madness. It's like these people who are like, fuck this guy for ruining a good thing. Like, look at where we are now. Think about what he did that helped the culture to turn on, like, the concepts of peace and love. Fuck that Mm -hmm. guy. I hate him. So Tarantino's a big fish fan is what you're saying? Totally, yes. Cool. (laughs) I I watched uh, Bad Times of the Royale last night. Because I was like, what do I want to see after seeing Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? I want to see another movie packed with a bunch of songs. Another three-hour movie. Yeah, I need another <laughs> nearly three-hour-long movie packed with a bunch of songs I love, where Charles Manson and/or his cult get butchered, and someone lovingly takes their shirt off. Yeah, yeah, that's that. That <laughs> yep. was also part of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. Anyway, uh, so that's what I've got. Um, <laughs> let's wrap it any, up. Any feet in that movie? I think he's he's got feet. In yeah, that he's movie. barefoot. He's yeah. got yeah, he's got his bare feet. I think we see boots as boots. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's it. I don't think there's a lot more feet in that movie. That that movie takes place in a very small timeline as well. So yeah, not yeah. a lot of opportunities for feet. Yep. Anyway, um, <laughs> what the fuck are we talking about? Talking about feet <laughs> movies. Feet movies. <laughs> oh man, uh, let's go. This is the Ped Pod. <laughs> no go. All right. so that's it uh we've been talking for over two hours about this movie i hope that you all have enjoyed it and found it enervating energizing and all those other words um next week what are we talking about next week Hobbs, Hobbs and shaw yep. hell yeah i um saw a great tweet today it ties into Hobbs and shaw and um let me see if i can find it real quick it was the last thing i tweeted oh you're talking about uh courtney howard <laughs> 
What was that? Courtney Howard. Courtney Howard. Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Weirdly <laughs> okay, enough, I cannot find it now said? for whatever reason. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to find it and I can't, which is weird because I'm pretty sure I retweeted it, but now I can't find it anywhere. Um, it was something along the lines of, and I am sorry for butchering the phrasing, but it was like, oh, here it is. You know that cancel culture isn't real because we all just accepted Shaw into the family, even though he killed Han. And that is from actually Brandy Jensen. This, this fucking thing. Okay. Look, Shaw killed Han. Yes, I know this. I don't know why we've just it's accepted kind of a that. Major and spoiler. Too, it's not a major, if you're going to see Hobbs and Shaw, you already know who Hobbs and Shaw are. Yes. I agree. You cannot suppose that it happened. And you more than likely have no fucking idea who Han is if you don't follow this sh- series. So right. Also, I'm pretty <laughs> sure no one listens to this podcast if it goes over two hours. So. <laughs> I won't. Yes. Brian, so uh, next week, Hobbs and Shaw. We're still I mean, I, I think they're fine. I've been <laughs> like, I, I've only seen two of them, I think. Which ones? Uh, which are seven and eight. Okay. Uh, you got to see like, five and six. Yeah. Right? I'll yeah. get, I'll get around to them. Maybe eventually. Uh, I, I, did, say, I did like I eight. Like it was fun. Number five. Like go go seek out number five. Mm-hmm. That's that's the one that really kind of changed changed my whole viewpoint because I saw the first one and then I saw the second one and I was like I'm done with this series. And then apparently it gets good around five. Five was like and, a soft reboot, yeah. Yeah, and where they were like, what if these people are just superheroes now? Three is so yeah. good though. That's no. what I've heard. I've heard I know three people is like Tokyo Drift, hell yeah. The one where Han dies. What was I going to okay. say? Anyway. Uh, there, there's an excellent episode of this here podcast. I I can't remember which Fast and Furious it is. Either six or seven. Where we reviewed it and Danny King was still on at that point. And he was like, I haven't seen any of the other ones. Should I watch them first? And I shouted at him that he could not. And that he had to go in and see the movie blind. And he loved it. Yeah. Yeah. So you you don't have to see all of them. Just go see it. Uh, but anyway, we're talking about Hobbs and Shaw. We still want to talk about the farewell. We still want to talk about Nightingale. Yeah, so we're gonna try to fit too. We're gonna try to fit those in. We're gonna try to fit in some classics. I don't know why we're making more work for ourselves, but uh, hopefully, I'll enjoy it. Until then, uh, remember to support us on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash show. Remember to go and get your free 30-day trial of movie by going to mubi.com slash filmstage. That will let you see Goodbye First Love by Mia Hansen Love, as well as The Thin Blue Line, Vernon, Florida, and Gates of Heaven from Errol Morris, and of course, the Atched and Kutcher masterpiece Spread by David McKenzie. <laughs> Special mention by Michael Snydell. <laughs> yeah, Michael Snydell's <laughs> personal request that I bring that up as often mm. as possible. Um, That is it. That is all. Let us tell the fine people at home where we can be found between now and the next time. Ryan Swen, why don't you start us off? I'm on Twitter at Swen underscore Ryan. That's S-W-E-N underscore R-Y-A-N. And I I write for the film stage. I have my own website at TaipeiMansions.com. And I have my own, or I co-host a podcast on the New York Film Festival called Catalyst and Witness, uh, which you can find at your normal podcast uh, places. We still haven't really come up for a good name for the thing that you listen to a podcast on, have we? Uh, I don't know. I, we tried Podcatcher I, for a while, and I think everyone agreed that that sounded so dumb. Yeah, I've heard Podcatcher, I don't know, podcast services, something like that. Wherever you find podcasts are sold. Oh, God. 
<laughs> All right. Next up, we have Bill Graham. Um, you can find me on Twitter at KBLBFG. You can also find me on the Slack channel. And uh, just a friendly reminder, send all your dirty feet picture to at Brian J. Rowan. Please don't. <laughs> Unless it's from this movie, in which case my 20-page uh, thesis paper about uh, clean feet, clean soul. <laughs> Jeez. Oh, I could have, damn it. Album? Why didn't I do clean soul, clean soul? <laughs> Fuck, clean it was souls, right there. Clean soul. All right, yeah, back to one. Let's souls. pretend that I didn't say the stupid version first. My 20-page thesis paper, clean soul, clean soul. Uh, anyway, oh, Michael Snydell. Uh, I'll be having my own manifesto about uh, socks and sandals and how you look like an idiot. Oh. Um, on Twitter at, at Snydell. I'm also on Letterboxd. I sometimes write reviews of things. Uh, oh, I'll have a review of Piranhas up later this week. I don't think I don't think sandals should be sandals if they are not the thong version. So that's that's my two cents. Because otherwise you can't do the socks and sandals. So I, that eliminates in any situation. <laughs> no, but I'm saying then it can't be possible. Okay. Right, because the sure. the thing between your toe will make the sock uncomfortable. Yep. Now, Bill, what about toe socks? Uh, I, I'm not a big fan of toe socks outside of shoes, but, you know, if you're into that, go for it. At least a sock. I remember toe socks were a big thing in middle school. Anyway, uh, let's end this. Uh, I can be found at Brian J. Rowan on all of the social medias. You can also find my writing at my personal site, BrianJRowan.com, uh, thefilmstage.com, where you can also find every episode ever produced of this year show. So, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us, and tune in next week. To say good morning and really mean it. Clean your feet. <laughs> to feel these changes. Are you yelling at the mamas and the papas to clean their feet because you can tell they're hippies? <laughs> <laughs>